Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for making all things well, for restoring heaven and earth, for bringing us back together with a Father who loves us. I pray today that your name will be high and lifted up, that your Holy Spirit will speak and move and stir, that I'll disappear, and that you'll be more clear than ever before. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We talked about it, and we decided we don't want those people here. That's the words, the statement that I walked into in a church board meeting in Tennessee at the church I was serving at. And uh, just for some context, we had been taking the last couple months to talk about starting a new ministry at the church. Uh, it was a ministry that was about um, recovery and restoration, and we were excited about starting it. The staff and the pastors were excited about seeing it started. Another church about an hour away had this ministry, and they loved it. They had come and done presentations and talked about what it was going to be like and how great it was going to be and the church board had been talking about it and praying about it or at least they said they were praying about it i don't know about you sometimes we say we were going to pray about something and that just means i don't want to do it but i'm gonna say that i'm gonna pray about it you know to save me some time um to me it was very simple i thought finally this church was going to do something that really mattered but the church board had met and decided that it wasn't right for us. And the reasoning was pretty simple. Here's what they said. They said, our church is made up of upper middle class families who wanted some property out in the country um, so that they could raise a family, have some horses, you know, have a nice suburban life while they commuted into jobs in the nearby city. And they worried that starting this ministry was going to actually scare these people away. Now, the ministry itself was going to work with the local government. The local county had already told us, if you start this at your church, every prisoner released from the nearby jail will have to go through a counseling course at your church. I was like, that's awesome. The local secular government is going to send us every prisoner released from jail. And they said, we don't want ex-cons and prisoners around our suburbanite families because it'll make them uncomfortable or make them feel unsafe. As one of the church members put it, this is, or church board members put it, this is a church for families, not a church for addicts and criminals. Future churches will be a church for addicts and criminals, for outcasts and losers and loners. They saw the church as a safe place for kids to learn good morals and make friends, they didn't see the church as a hope for desperate people looking for new life. They didn't want their families to feel unsafe or uncomfortable, and they didn't care if that meant people who needed Jesus went unreached. Now, I'm afraid that they're not alone. If we looked out across America, we'd have a lot of churches who think the exact same way. I think the way we think about church has to change. Now, over the last few weeks, I know some of you are like, will this series ever end? This is the last one. It's finally ending. But over the last few weeks, we've been talking about the future of the North American church, what the church needs to do to survive and thrive into the future, because we're at this critical, changing moment in our culture and in our world. Now, as much as I loved my church in Tennessee, they weren't thinking about the future. They were living in the past. 
Future churches will gather the undesirables and the outcasts. Um, Jesus didn't die to create safe gathering places for financially mobile middle-class families. He died to make us spiritually dangerous. Our churches aren't retreat centers that we go away and we have a luxurious retreat at. They're forward operating bases in a global war between good and evil. Sean was in the military. We've had some other people who aren't here today who have been in the military. Did you ever complain uh, at, a, at a base? Like, these accommodations are not to my liking. No, they would have they would have chewed you out. They would have done all kinds of stuff to you to uh, be like, what are you thinking about? Like, you're in the army. This is not about your comfort. This is about a conflict. Future churches will be unsafe places in the best sense of the word. They just will be. Now, Jesus was constantly criticized for eating with tax collectors and sinners. And scholars tell us that's code word for traitors and sex workers. The religious elites called him a glutton and a friend of tax collectors and sinners, a friend of traitors and sex workers. He was always throwing these dinner parties for the unsafe people in his society. And Jesus told his followers in Luke 14, verses 13 through 14, when you host a dinner banquet, these are the people you should invite. Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed since they cannot repay you. In the first century, dinner parties were all about moving up the social economic ladder. You wanted to be at the right dinners and you wanted the right people to come to your dinners. Status was all about how you sat at a dinner, what dinners you went to and which ones you didn't go to. And Jesus said, this should be the mark of how you hold your banquets. Invite the people who cannot repay you, the people who are on the fringe of society, the people who are forgotten, and people think are worthless. See, future churches will love people that can't benefit them. Um, I love to read about what other churches are doing. I'm fascinated by, like, how can church be better? Obviously, I'm preaching this series. I'm passionate about it. And I was listening to this one church. Um, they're a huge church. They're doing some great things. And I was just listening to their strategy, and they said, here's what we do. We imagine the person we want to reach in our mind. He's upper middle class. He's white. He's got a good job. He's moral, loves his family. He has a little bit of Christian background, but he doesn't yet uh, really become a follower of Jesus. And he's like, that's who we go after. And I get that. That's allowed them to get a lot of money and a lot of presence. But I think future churches will tap into the ancient controversial practice of Jesus to reach and gather the outcasts and the undesirables, not the people who have money and influence and success, who we can say, oh, good, you can give us some of that here at the church. The people who make us uncomfortable will be the people of the future now, this tendency of Jesus was ultimately carried on by the early church, but only after getting a good shove in the right direction. They didn't immediately jump on this way of thinking. And we're going to see this in Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 1. In Acts chapter 8, in verse 1, it says, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea, Judea and Samaria. And godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. 
going from house to house. He dragged off men and women. He put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. And when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many. Many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Now, notice first Luke's language here. Um, he says that Saul began to destroy the church. Now, I've said previously, but Luke is a master storyteller. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote the Book of Acts. And he is always weaving together these little foreshadowing elements about what's going to happen next. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, before Jesus ascends, he tells his followers, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, the early church had been witnesses in Jerusalem, mostly because that's where they were. That's where it started. Um, and then they had become witnesses to Judea, Judea, because that was the region around Jerusalem, and because on Pentecost, people had come from there into Jerusalem and heard this message. But they hadn't gone to Samaria, and they hadn't gone to the ends of the earth. They were comfortable there, and they weren't ready to move out and fulfill the commands of Christ. Now, perhaps they were waiting for the right moment. Do you ever do this? Sometimes I wait for the right moment, and then I miss every opportunity. I miss all the moments because I'm like, it's just not the right one yet. It's not the right one. Um, and I end up missing the moment. Suffering, though, forced them to be obedient where they had been comfortable, and suffering will first force the future church to be obedient where we've been comfortable. Saul, in one chapter, in chapter 9 of Acts, the story is going to change and Saul is going to become the focus from then on for the rest of the book of Acts. He's going to have this radical encounter with Jesus and convert to Christianity. But in chapter 8 here, Luke says, Saul is destroying the church. Except that he wasn't destroying the church because Luke goes on to say, what happened? He was spreading the church out. And they were actually sharing about Jesus wherever they went. Saul was actually spreading the church. He thought he was destroying it, but he was actually spreading it. His evil actions of imprisonment and torture and execution was actually having the opposite effect of what he wanted. He wanted to wipe it out, and he was spreading it. So for just a moment here, I want to talk about God's sovereignty, because we tend to get ourselves backed into weird corners in Christianity when we talk about the providence of God, the sovereignty of God. And if we're not careful, sometimes as Christians, we say things about God's providence or sovereignty, and it makes us sound like we're excusing God of doing evil. Um, that's not what God is about. God brings good out of evil. He doesn't cause evil. God used Saul's persecution to spread the good news of Jesus' kingdom, but he didn't cause Saul to persecute his people. God is not the author of evil, but God is so good he can bring good out of evil. When somebody does something terrible, they take um, a weapon and they murder someone else, God does not cause that murder, but God is good enough to somehow bring good things out of that that murder. That doesn't somehow balance it, like, oh, the murder was worth it because this good happened. But no. But at the same time, there are still good things that can happen despite the bad. He doesn't let the evil deed have the last and final word. God doesn't let humans free will choose selfish, uh, God doesn't let humans free will to choose selfish things derail his plans to do good and bring good into our lives. That's what it means when God is sovereign. God doesn't cause evil, but God brings good even out of evil things. 
He doesn't make Saul persecute the church, but at the same time, he makes sure the persecution is not wasted. And what God's sovereignty means in your life and my life is when we experience pain, it doesn't mean God caused that pain, but it means that God will bring good out of the pain. He won't allow pain to be the final word. Now, Philip here is not the apostle Philip, but rather Deacon Philip, who we were introduced to in Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, once again, Luke sets it up so well. He mentions at the beginning two of the deacons, and then he follows that with telling us stories about them. He mentions Stephen and Philip, and then last chapter we got a story about Stephen laying down his life, and now in chapter 8 we get a story about Philip. The persecution drove the Jewish believers out of Jerusalem, and the normal Jewish response would have been to avoid Samaria instead of going into it, but Philip went right to it. He's like, okay, leaving Jerusalem, I'm going to Samaria. And you might ask, why avoid Samaria? Like, is that, a, is that like Kensington? You just don't go there at certain times of the day? Like, why avoid it? Well, the Jews hated the Samaritans, and there was a lot of reasons for this. Um, there was definitely racism as part of that. The, the Samaritans were half Jew, half Gentile. They were considered eth ethnically unclean. They were traitors to their Jewish identity um, in the Jewish mindset of the first century. They had a complicated history of worshiping both God and idols interchangeably, so they were theologically a mess. And the Jews of the first century called them dogs. That's how strongly they felt about it. Now, this was not a fun idea like, I, I look at that and I'm like, oh, a dog. That's the cutest thing on the planet right there. That's my dog Hagrid when he's behaving. It's not a fun idea like the domesticated dogs of today. This was like calling somebody a wild garbage-eating mongrel. This was like the, a terrible, terrible slur to call somebody. But every time that Jesus talked about Samaritans, he talked about them in a positive light. When we hear Samaritan, we instantly think of the Good Samaritan, and we have positive um, connotations and cultural associations because of the stories of Jesus. But the story of the Good Samaritan would have been highly controversial in Jesus' day. Samaritans were not the heroes of any story. They were the villains. They were the, the butt of the joke. They were not the hero of the story. To begin to understand how strongly the story of the Good Samaritan would have rubbed the first century Jewish people the wrong way, I'm going to change the words to the story a little bit, just so you get a picture of how that story probably hit people in the first century. A man was going down from Philly to the shore for vacation. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes and they beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A Catholic priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a pastor, when he came to the place, he saw him and passed by on the other side. But a member of the Taliban as he was traveling, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And he went to him and bandaged his wounds and poured oil and wine on them. And then he put the man in his own car and brought him to a hotel and took care of him. And the next day he took $2,000 and gave them to the manager and said, look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you have. Boy, that story has a different ring, right? That's how it would have hit people in the first century. They hated the Samaritan. There was no good Samaritan. Like, I don't sit around and I'm like, there's probably a good Taliban member out there. No, they're all bad, right? Like, that's immediately what we think. In the first century, Samaritans were hated and despised, and the fact that Jesus made them a hero of one of his most famous stories was highly controversial, highly scandalous. 
They felt so strongly about the Samaritans in the first century. And yet we know Jesus went to Samaria, right? He preached about his kingdom there. He met the woman at the well. When the religious leaders accused Jesus of being demon-possessed and a Samaritan, he says, I'm not demon-possessed. But he doesn't deny not being a Samaritan. Not because he was a Samaritan. He was fully Jewish. But because he didn't want Samaritans listening to him to feel like being a Samaritan was something to be ashamed of. And Philip went to the Samaritans, and he told them about Jesus' life, and his death, and his resurrection, and his ascension, and what happens. It says in verse 8, joy broke out in that city. The coming of the story of Jesus brought joy, not shame. The outcasts and the undesirables, the people who were on the fringe of society, were welcomed into the family of God. And so as we come to the end of our series about the future of the church, I have to ask, who would make you uncomfortable to see in our church? Who would make you uncomfortable to share a meal with? Who would make you uncomfortable to sit next to at Horizon? Who might it seem too dangerous to let in? A.C. Dixon, a, a pastor in the 19th century, he said, We must pass by the good moral people and seek the outcasts. We must pass by those who, think we, who we think would make the best members of the church and go with our invitation to the very refuse of society. Refuse is just a fancier old way of saying trash. The trash of society. The people that you think, they're no good. They're not worth anything. What's the value in reaching them and seeking them and helping them? Who's the lowest moral person in our society? That's who Horizon is for. Not for the wealthy who are moral and just maybe a little bit of Jesus and they'll really be right in that sweet spot. The people who are on the fringe, the people who are the outcasts, the future church will gather and teach those people to be students of Jesus' way of life. We won't be thinking, oh man, that person's got a lot of influence. If we could reach them, think about all the doors that would open up. Or, oh, that person has a lot of money. If we reach them, think about all we could do with their money if they start giving. That's not how the future church will think. The future church will think, hey, there's somebody who has nothing and can give us nothing. How can we offer them Jesus, which is everything? Think about the type of person who you think it would be scandalous to have in the church. And I want you to do a little thought experiment with me. Imagine you're walking by a house at night. Sometimes I take Hagrid on walks at night in our community, and people have their windows wide open, and they have like a 90-inch flat screen. And I'm, I'm like, oh, I've seen that movie, you know? I'm like, they're just kind of broadcasting it to the neighborhood. I feel like I'm just enjoying it with them, you know? Um, you see the people, you look in one of these windows in this imaginary setting, and let's say you see people sitting around a table, and it's some people that you've never been very comfortable with, and they're sitting around a table eating and drinking wine, and sitting at the table with them is Jesus. And he's drinking and smiling and laughing and singing and dancing and having a good time with the people that you feel like, ooh, not those people. Those aren't the right people for you to be with Jesus. What if somebody gets the wrong idea? That's exactly the picture we're given in the New Testament of Jesus. The people were scandalized by the people he ate dinner with. The religious people, the church people would walk by. They'd be like, I can't believe Jesus is eating with those people. Look, he's laughing. He's having a good time. Surely if he was hanging out with them, he'd be real somber. Like, 
I do not approve of your lifestyle, you know? No, he seems to be having a good time. He's enjoying them. He's welcoming them in. He's inviting them to be a part of the family of God. He says, you have value and worth. No one is beyond the reach of Jesus. And I think sometimes we become gatekeepers to keep the wrong kinds of people out of our church. And if we need to start thinking like a future church, we need to start thinking like the first century church and throw open, non-judgmental parties that invite people far from God to belong even before they believe. So the question as we come to the end of our series about the future of the church that I think that we have to think about and meditate on and hold before us at all times of the day as we go about our lives is how can we make people far from God? People on the outcast, people on the fringe, people who might make us feel uncomfortable. How can we make them feel wanted and welcome in our community like Jesus did? That's going to be a key element of a future church. They won't be known for being judgmental, but welcoming to the outcasts and the undesirables. Now, you say, Alex, does that just mean you just never talk about sin? You just never talk about the things that Scripture says about sin? No, that just means that we recognize that shame has never changed anyone's life, but community has. It doesn't say in verse 8 that shame broke out in that city when Philip brought to them the story of Jesus. It says joy broke out. And if your church and your message is bringing more shame than it's bringing joy, I think it's missing the story of Jesus. People change because we give them a vision of a better future, a vision of living and loving like Jesus in his kingdom. And I believe that sin robs us of joy. God didn't command us not to do things or to avoid certain things because he's like, man, I just really like controlling people. He did that because he wants to funnel us towards joy. And what we offer people is a picture of joy, and we say, this is the path to joy, and the path has a name, it's a person, his name is Jesus. Sin robs lives of joy, so instead of criticizing the sin, we offer joy, we offer Jesus. That's the future of the church, that's the future of Horizon, a gathering of people learning to live and love like Jesus, becoming people of peace and agents of love, changing the world through our free distribution of supernatural joy. Is that the kind of church that we want to be? Is that the kind of church you want to be a part of? The future's coming. Is Horizon ready? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for recording the, the starts and the falterings of the early church. Thank you how 2,000 years later, in a dramatically different culture and world, we can still learn from the vision you had for church to be a gathering place of broken and uh, shattered people who gather together around Jesus and find healing and life. God, I pray that you will make us, you will make us comfortable with being uncomfortable, that we will welcome and want people far away from you, uh, that we won't think like, oh man, if they were a little bit more moral, they'd fit in. But Lord, may we go to the people who don't even realize that the deepest longing of their heart is a cry for you. Help Horizon to become a future church. Help me to be a pastor who thinks and is passionate about reaching people far away from God. May I think like a future pastor and not someone living deep in the past of the church. Lord, help us to get 
comfortable with the people who make us feel uncomfortable so we can share with them the love of Jesus. I pray all these things like I believe you would.